Well, we are going to cover it verse by verse, so buckle up. And uh, I was at a preaching workshop on Tuesday at Harding. They were doing the letter to the Philippians, and I commented to Bruce McClarty, who had two sessions to talk about the preaching from uh, preaching the book of Philippians. He had two sessions to cover four chapters. I said, those no goods in Tennessee gave me one session to cover 16 chapters. But I, but I think I understand my, my duty today. I'm glad to be back. And this is a real treat for me because I get invited to speak to a lot of places and a lot of occasions. I seldom get invited back. So this is a real, real treat for me to be here today. Uh, everybody, you should have a, just an introduction, um, and we won't look at this. We're not going to deal with this, but it does give you, if you just put in your files, maybe you can want to steal this later, but um, it's just a good overall introduction to the book of Corinthians, and then the five major divisions as I see it. How, how Paul deals with different issues and answers questions, especially from chapters uh, 7 on. He answers questions that seem to have been sent to him. You know, Chloe's household is reporting things, and seems that possibly he has received a letter from the Corinthian church. And they've asked a lot of practical questions and some theological questions. And so a good portion of the book that Paul writes is to respond to their specific questions. I wish we knew exactly what the questions were, but we have a pretty good general idea. And so how many in here have ever preached through, now I'm not talking about a Bible class, preach through the book of 1 Corinthians? And and even they were like... All right, so one, two, three. I saw three hands, okay? Now, how many have taught 1 Corinthians in a Bible class? Okay, we, that's where we like to deal with it. Uh, maybe on a semester and, and, uh, or a 13-week course, but oftentimes preaching 1 Corinthians is more intimidating because you, you are the guy that has to answer some of these questions, and there's some difficult questions about the roles of men and women and marriage and divorce. Lots of uh, questions, uh, church discipline. And, and so it's more intimidating. Now, I will tell you, I have preached through 1 Corinthians, and it was not the most difficult letter I have preached through. I have preached through Romans. And I preached through Romans when Jimmy Allen still walked the earth. And, and, and was sitting right about there, and, and he wrote, he thinks, he wrote the book of, uh, of Romans. And um, I love Jimmy Allen. He is, uh, and he still is with us. He is in a uh, home in, um, in the Dallas area, and he has completely lost his memory. So he's not the Jimmy Allen that we remember. But, but he was the Jimmy Allen when I was preaching through Romans. And every time I saw him in the audience, I mean, I was scared to death. I was really um, intimidated when I got into uh, Romans chapter 11 and the physical salvation of Israel because I'd been in a fishing boat with Jimmy and I already knew that what I believed was far different than what he believed. And, and the Lord was gracious that night because the Sunday that I preached from Romans 11, he got called to preach somewhere else. So, <laughs> you know, so God is good. But if you have preached through 1 Corinthians, it takes a while. And may, you may be there for a while. And it's kind of like um, the guy that I heard about. He had preached nearly a year 
on the book of 1 Corinthians, and someone was asking one of the members, well, how's it going? How's this sermon series about 1 Corinthians going? And one of the members said, well, we still love our preacher, but we hate 1 Corinthians, you know? (laughs) So there's a lot there, and it takes a lot to cover. And so probably if you ever do preach from 1 Corinthians, it may be shorter series dealing with certain subjects or topics uh, from there. But we're going to try to just give you a general overview of, of what you might encounter if you preach from... 1 Corinthians. Now, I was trained to preach primarily. Now, I was a couple of semesters at Lipscomb. And so I had, um, um, well, his name's escaped me now, Thomas Holland. I had him for a preaching class, but I learned most of my preaching from Stafford North at Oklahoma Christian. Wrote a book on preaching. In fact, he thinks he invented preaching. And he wrote a book, and, I, and he taught us the deductive way of preaching. And that is where, you know, you, you know, you first of all, you have to have in your mind this purpose statement or this thesis. And you have um, the explanation and the argumentation and then you have an illustration and then you have an application. And um, and and I was trained and I'm not married to those ways now. But I have learned that if you will take the illustration, every one of us has that one illustration that we build ourselves up to, to share that story or that, uh, that idea. Well, if you'll take that illustration that usually we put toward the end somewhere, and if you'll move that to the beginning, before you ever tell them what you're going to say, before you ever really introduce the topic, if you will tell them the story, and if you'll plant that seed of thought in there first, and get everybody thinking about that story with you, you've now made it an inductive sermon. And I think that is the best way to preach most of 1 Corinthians. Instead of telling them, well, we're going to preach about marriage and divorce today, which everybody then divides right down the middle, you know, kind of their thoughts and opinions about marriage and divorce and, and remarriage. But if you'll start with an engaging story. And maybe you need to start with the impact of what divorce has on families today. And if you'll start with the, the, the divorce and the pain, the agony, the children, all of a sudden people bring a pathos now to this lesson that, that they're on the bus with you. They're, they're ready to share this experience with you before you get into the text of what Paul says about the Christian marriage and divorce and, and uh, marrying again, all of that. So just kind of put that somewhere in the back of your mind and, and learn to, to, to build that story in the beginning and get people engaged with you. Uh, and I think that's going to serve you well as you preach from uh, 1 Corinthians. Well, Paul begins the letter by saying, Paul, as he introduces himself, called by the will of God and and I'm so grateful to uh, uh, Paul, who dealt with a lot of things that I, I studied and prepared myself like this Sosthenes that's in the first one. You know, who is he? Is he really the guy from chapter 18? And so I'm glad that he dealt with a lot of that so that you, you've kind of passed that now. Now we're just going to get in and we're going to get our fingernails gritty and dirty as we look at the, uh, the text now. But, um, but he's writing to the church of God. And it's interesting that he begins his letter 
with probably one of the most elevated titles that we as Christians have. We are the church of God. And yet he chose to begin one of the most critical letters he has written with calling those he's writing to the church of God, even calls them the sanctified, and he calls them saints. And I, if I were writing this letter, knowing the things that I've heard about Corinth, knowing the specific sins that are in that church, the division, the immorality, uh, the taking a brother to court, if I knew all of the specifics about this, I might have been hesitant to call them a church of God. I might have called them a church of a lot of other things. But he still knows who they are. And he knows that they are called saints. Now, we sometimes we elevate that word that the New Testament doesn't. You know, it's sanctified holy. It means to be set apart. But it goes back to that expression, I ain't no saint. I'm not better than anybody else. And that's not what he's saying. He's not saying you're better than anyone else. He's just saying the blood of Christ has cleansed you and made you holy. Now, he's going to get into how they're not living holy. But they were called to be holy. They are the church of God. He also does a second thing that I find maybe interesting that he would do, knowing the specifics of this church, is he thanks God for them. Now, this is particular to the uh, writings of Paul. He does this oftentimes. It's kind of his way of greeting a, a church with grace and peace. And then he says, I give thanks always to God for you. He says it this way. I give thanks to my God always because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And this idea of being thankful for a church, a church that is wrought with problems, sexual immorality, all kinds of uh, divisions and competition among those with spiritual gifts. He still gives thanks. That is maybe the one thing that as preachers, church leaders, if I can tell you to do something more often than you're doing now, be thankful for your church. Not just privately and not just in your, in your uh, own personal prayers, and, and, uh, um, but verbally, publicly, in your sermons. Bruce McClarty, the president at uh, Harding, who I followed as the preacher at College Church, in his uh, commentary on Philippians, he tells a story about a preacher friend of his that was in the Nashville area many years ago. And he was there for a while, and he was preaching uh, a lot of topical, a lot of series. And um, just, I think, everything for this one individual sort of just came to a head uh, for this person, this woman. And after a day of preaching, and he's leaving the building... He's walking out under the lights of the parking lot and he's walking out to his car and he's thinking about the lesson and things went the way he wanted and he felt like things were good. And this member pulled up alongside of him in her car and even under the lights of the parking lot, he could see tears in her eyes. And she rolled down the window and he stopped and she said, why don't you like us? You know, she basically is asking the question, is there anything about us you like? 
Because it is the propensity of preachers to be able to, to point out the flaws and the warts and the negative things about a church that he believes needs to be improved and can be improved. And so we step on toes and we do that sort of thing. And we feel called that when there is something that needs to be said, we are bold enough to say it. And we need to be bold enough to say those things, but not to the uh, extent that people don't know how much we love them. And even when you have to be a little bit critical, and maybe your sermon is going to be a little bit negative. I don't think any sermon needs to be very negative. But maybe there are times when we have to take a good look at ourselves in the mirror. But make sure that they hear first, and maybe even during, but certainly at the end, let them know how grateful you are for them. Let them know you love them. And there are so many things that you appreciate about them. How, this is what he, how God is working His grace through them. Are they perfect? No. None of us have a, a perfect church that we're preaching for. But is God's grace still good in that church? And are there ways of seeing what's good? We need to remind the church more and more. I do a devotional every Tuesday uh, for our, our children's Mother's Day Out program. So we have a devotional. We sing songs and we have a Bible lesson. And at the end of this devotional that takes about 30 minutes, and we'll say our prayer, and I'll every eye closed and every mouth closed, and I get them real quiet. It's interesting. Some of the little children, I don't know where they've learned this, but they are now prostrating themselves on the floor like they're looking toward Mecca. I mean, it's, it's just really, it looks just like that. And I'll have a, this whole row of little kids down there and they're on the, their face on the ground. But after the prayer, uh, without fail, I always shout to them, Who loves you most? And they will shout back to me, God loves us most. And I'll say, that's right. God loves you more than you know. But who else loves you with all of his heart? Mr. Noel loves us with all of his heart. They need to hear that time and time again. Paul is going to really get critical of this church. But they know he loves them. And they know he's, he knows this church well. He knows the names and the faces he knows the homes. Um, he knows, they know that he's thankful uh, for them. Well, we've already gone that far and we're on verse 3. So we'll pick it up. Well, he gets into the uh, divisions of the church in uh, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. And when he talks about uh, divisions in verse 10, this is one of the key verses in all of the letter. By the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And I used to think that this word, divisions, comes from the word schisma. What do we get the English word from? Or, or that means uh, that. Schisms. And, and I used to think it was like kind of what a pharmacist does. My daughter is in pharmacy school at Harding. She's in her last year. And... I thought that that's where you just take a, uh, you know, a certain amount of these pills and, and you divvy them out and you put them in the, in the bottle because, because now these will be a little division that now belongs to you and you take them once a day for 30 days. That's not what this word means. It's not that 10 of us go over here and we believe this thing and 10 of us go over here and we believe that thing. It's the idea of a garment being rent. 
I mean, you just take it and rip it right in two. That's really what Paul is saying, that there seems to be a division. It's like taking the church and just ripping it uh, in, in two. And part of the division is what preachers they like. Does that sound anything like our fellowships at times? You know, what preacher? And some like Paul, some like Apollos. And he'll talk about this in this chapter. He'll talk about it again uh, in, um, uh, in chapter 3, in, uh, in verse 4. He says, one of you will say, I follow Paul. I follow Paulus, another says. And, and, but aren't, aren't you just humans? And aren't we just humans? Paul will say, well, they're following Paul and they like Apollos. And he throws Peter in there. I don't know that there's any indication that Peter was ever in Corinth. Uh, maybe he was, and maybe I'm just missing something, but I don't think, I think he's, I think he just symbolically, uh, even uh, talking about a preacher that may be afar, but um, he, they're still just men. They're apostles, but they're men. And at least some of them get it right. We follow Christ. And Paul never says this, but he's going to bring them around to saying, that's what all of you should be doing. We are servants of Christ. He'll say in this letter, we are servants, number one. We are stewards, number two. That's who we are. We are not to be followed. Uh, and one thing that I think is a core principle that you'll find all the way through Corinthians is he always handles these problems and issues and difficulties by taking us back to some aspect of the gospel, death, burial, resurrection of, of Jesus, even the appearance uh, later. And he'll take us back to some core issue uh, that's rooted and grounded, grounded in the gospel. And he takes us back to the love of God. And he takes us back to the sacrifice of Christ. He takes us back to the death and the burial, the resurrection, to remind us Jesus is the reason for the church of God. It's not Apollos and it's not Paul. It's not Cephas. And he is the reason. And so when, when there's division, let's just keep our minds on the Christ and not on who's preaching about the Christ. Look at verse 18, if you've got your Bibles open. He says, For the word of the cross is folly, this, this foolishness. Everything that we do, the fact that you would get together on a chilly, rainy Monday afternoon to study one of these books, the, whole, the world looks at you and thinks how foolish you are. You were just in church yesterday. That was foolish enough, but now to come back another day to be encouraged by the Word and to delve into the Word a little bit more. But God's wisdom and God's wisdom for overcoming these issues, the world says that's foolish. You know, when we get into the gender issues in, in this letter, the world says, why don't you just ignore gender? Why don't you just pretend they don't exist and you come up with your pronoun and you come up with your pronouns? And you just make people refer to you the way you want to. Paul will always take us back to the cross and the love of God, the sacrifice of Christ. And, um, and that's where how we handle these issues. And it's never, you don't, the wisdom of the world doesn't apply in the church of God. It's foolishness to the world. But we understand that is the wisdom of God. Go down to verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. Therefore, it's written, let the one who boasts, the only thing you can boast in is in the Lord. 
But he's talking about division. And really, I think the whole chapter 1 is just the introduction to everything he's going to deal with because every single issue that he's going to deal with has brought division to the church. Division isn't just a chapter 1 problem. It's a chapter 2 through 13, 14 problem. And, And the two primary ways that he's going to deal with every one of these issues is go back to God and his wisdom. And number two, love for one another. Kind of reminds you about the two greatest commandments. Love God, love each other. And you fulfilled the law of Christ. Uh, That's 1 Corinthians. Listen to God and love one another. Now he gets into chapter 2. And uh, your heading above many of your Bibles will say, Proclaiming Christ Crucified. And uh, he's still going to be talking about um, division, and, and he talks about the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit in the first half of that chapter. But when he looks at verse 14, he looks at the church, and he sees a bunch of folks, as he calls them, they are natural persons. They are fleshly or carnal. They're worldly in their thinking. And they don't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are holy, or excuse me, uh, folly to Him, and, and is not understandable because these are spiritually discerned. You know, the whole book of Proverbs, this whole collection of wisdom literature called Proverbs that was written from a father to a son saying, Son, If I could live your life for you, if I could make all of the decisions for you, this is how I would live. And in fact, when I teach Proverbs, I basically there's five areas of life that Proverbs deals with. First of all, it deals with um, my relationship with my family. You know, he'll talk about a father, son, mother, son, and all those kind of relationships. He doesn't say a whole lot about the husband, wife, except for, you know, it's better to live on the roof of a house than to live in the house with a contentious woman. And Proverbs is really kind of difficult on women. But I, and I always have to remind my uh, congregation that uh, it's a two-way street. Uh, it's no easier to live with a contentious man than it is with a contentious woman. But, but, it, but Proverbs gives you wisdom of how to get along in the family. And then it'll talk about others, other people, how you live in wisdom when we relate to other people. And then it will talk about our jobs and our career. It will talk about our money, all these kinds of things. But, and I forget what my fifth one is, but as I talk about these things, They are the five areas that every one of us deal with every single day. Every day I have to deal with my wife, oftentimes with my kids. Now, when they were living at home, it was every day. My uh, my career, my job, uh, I had to deal with money. And I forget what the fifth one is. Whatever it was, it was very important. Also, it's something we deal with. Oh, that's right. You're right. Self. That's why I couldn't realize. I don't think about myself. Thank you, brother. Thank you for reminding me. But yeah, you have to, how you deal with yourself. So they, but, but you get these five things right in your life, it's amazing how good life will be. And sometimes how easy life will be. won't be completely. There'll still be struggles. There'll be hardships. The world makes sure of that. Satan will make sure of it. But, but you get God's wisdom in your life and in your church. It's amazing how things seem to just go away. As one writer put it, that the gospel 
and the preaching of the gospel takes care of all of the little issues in the church, and it really does. And that's what he's doing. Quit thinking like the world and start spiritually discerning the wisdom of God and get that into your life. So he comes back to the uh, chapter or the subject in chapter 3, divisions in the church. He says, but I, brothers, I can't address you as spiritual people. It's a little bit like what the you know, Hebrew writer and others would say. I'd, there's some things I'd like to tell you. You're just not able to to understand them. You are not mature enough to deal with these things. I want to say a lot more to you, but, but you're not spiritual. You're carnal. You're natural. You're people of the flesh. You're still infants in Christ. And I fed you with milk, not solid food. You weren't ready for it. And he says now, verse 5, that's why there's division, Apollos and Paul and Peter Because you're not mature. You're not spiritually discerning a lot of these things. You're not locked in arms behind Jesus Christ. You know, you're you're kind of got your finger in the belt loop of Paul or Peter or Apollos, but you're not locked in arms as as a family of God, a church of God in Corinth, behind Jesus Christ and Him alone. I read a book recently by uh, Stu Weber. I don't know if how many of you, but he's uh, written uh, uh, three or four really excellent books about spiritual leadership and different things. He has one particular book called Locking Arms. That's where I get this, this thought in my mind. Um, he was um, uh, in Vietnam. He won three bronze stars. So he was, he was a tough guy. He was a Green Beret he was an army ranger, but he recalls a time in his uh, uh, beginning years when he was in training to become a U.S. Army ranger. And he was down in Fort Benning, Georgia, and it was in the, the heat of, of, that, of Georgia's summer. And they're, they're going through a lot of conditioning training. Usually, their conditioning training each morning constituted t-shirts and shorts and running shoes, and you ran two or three, four miles. One particular day, it was different, and they were ordered to suit up. I mean, they were, they were in full battle gear. They had the metal helmet, and they had the rifle on their, uh, slung over their shoulder. They had uh, boots, and they, had, they were completely dressed, and um, backpack that was full of all the things that they might need, you know, in, uh, in battle. And, and so basically, they are on a forced march. And they, they haven't been told where they're going or how long they'll be gone. And Stu Weber is in the, the, this platoon of men, and they have been going a quite, quite a while, and every soldier is just sweating profusely. And the heat is really taking its toll. And he notices that up ahead of him, there seems to be something wrong. And he points out a soldier by the name of Sanderson. And Sanderson's struggling. And he's not in step with everyone else. He, he's wobbling. And he's running out of steam. The problem is, Stu Weber says, before that day began, there commanding officer said, you are going to go out together. You are going to work together. 
you are going to come in together. If you don't come in together, you don't come in. And he put that in all of them. So Sanderson's struggling, and he's not going to make it. And all of a sudden, Stu Weber says someone reached over and took the rifle off of Sanderson's shoulder, and he slung it on his other shoulder, and they kept going. But he was still struggling. Someone else reached over from the other side and took his helmet, put it under his arm, and they kept going. And it was not working yet. And finally, two men behind Sanderson each reached up and they lifted that backpack off of his shoulders. And between them, in each of their free hands, they carried Sanderson's backpack. And it's at this time, Weber says, Sanderson reached down and he mustered up whatever reserve of energy he had left. And he got back into step with the platoon. And and they crossed the finish line. And Weber says, we went out together. And we worked together. And we came back together. And we were the better for it, having gone through it. That's what Paul wants the church in Corinth to know. We're in this together. Okay, we're not, we are, our platoon leader is not Paul and it's not Apollos. It's Jesus Christ, the one who died for us and saved us of our sins. And, and, we, and, and we are going out together and we're going to come home together. So he says, now there's a practicality all of this. He says, now I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Here's how I used to preach this. These are all, and I'm no Greek expert, someone can come up to me afterwards and say, you were just completely wrong about all this. But this seems to be an aorist tense. So it's some act in the past that's an imper, it's a, 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 a past tense, that it was a one-time act. And I used to think, well, this is where, well, Paul came in first and he planted, planted the seed. Then comes along Apollos, gifted preacher, and he watered this and he kept the preaching going. But it's God who then grew the church in Corinth. But as I look at this and as I understand Greek a little bit more, this seems to be to me something that just keeps right on acting. Yes, I planted, but the others were planting too. And, and Apollos watered, but others keep watering. We're all doing our part, is what he's saying. It's not that I did this, someone else did this, and that's why God is able to water it. The only part of this that seems to be the imperfect tense, it's an act that keeps on acting, is God gives the increase. So I don't want you to think about this as though Paul did his part, Apollos did his part, and now God gives success to that. God, God is who brings success to it all the time. I just happen to be a part of the process. But this idea, well, Paul planted. Well, he, he has never stopped planting in that church. And Apollos has never stopped watering in that church. And, um, and so God is just blessing this church. And one of the ways that he wants his blessing to be shown is to the realization that they are the temple of God. I grew up saying, you know, did you go to church? Oh, we don't go to church. Did you hear that growing up? We don't go to church. We are 
the church. You know, we heard that. Well, that's exactly the point that he's making. You don't, you know, for some of you, you don't go to the temple and fornicate with a prostitute there. You know, it's not like you've gotten out of God's house to go to a pagan's house. No, you are God's house no matter where you go. And he says, you are God's temple, verse 16. I'm still in chapter 3. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. He'll come around to this again in chapter 6. You know, you were bought with a price. You are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. But he could have just as easily said, through the temple. You are the holy temple of God. And uh, when he says in chapter 4, um, the beginning part of chapter 4, he's talking about the ministry of the apostles. He says, I want you to regard us as stewards or as servants and as stewards of the mystery of God. Look at verse 6. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. All of this talking about division and uh, who we are as the church of God, all of the, the reason I'm saying all of these things is not to make me better than Apollos or to make me less than Apollos. All of this is for your benefit that you may learn by us not to go beyond what God has written, what we have preached, what we have written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. He's talking about pride. And, it, and it's the idea, I, I don't want you to, you know, we were joking a minute ago, pride is not thinking too much about yourself. You know, that's, or I mean, excuse me, humility and pride. You know, pride is when you think too much about yourself. And humility isn't thinking too less of yourself. Humility is, is when it comes to the body of Christ at whole, it's not thinking about yourself at all. It's about thinking about others and what would be best for them and what would be best for the kingdom of God. So stop with your pride, he says. You're the temple of God. And, and Christ is the head of the, of the church is what he's ultimately saying. But in chapter 5, now he gets right down to the... As uh, Flavel Yakely passed away uh, uh, about a year ago. Flavel Yakely, a professor at, at Harding. This is what the Latins call the nitai grittai. Well, we're getting to the nitai grittai now because he says it's actually reported in the church of God that there is a man who is having an affair with his stepmother, okay, with his father's wife. He says, that kind of thing isn't even tolerated among the non-believers, among the pagans. And you're arrogant. Now, the you is not you the man. He's not talking about David the fornicator. You're the man. You is the church in Corinth. And you are arrogant. You ought to mourn about him, not boast about him, not, not to overlook this, because basically there, I think he is, a little bit later is going to you know, quote from maybe one of their own proverbs about this freedom in Christ that they have, but he, he, you know, he is going to say, you've got this in your midst, and you're not doing anything about it. You're overlooking it. You're winking at it. Maybe 
you arrogantly think we have freedom in Christ. It's okay. Because this kind of goes back to Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Man, this is a great gig we've got as Christians. And so you've got this kind of immoral sin that even the pagans go, wow, man. They, and, and it's right there in the church. And so he talks about disciplining this man. Now, church discipline. I've preached on church discipline and I have tried to preach on it when we didn't need to discipline anybody. Now, we tend to do that. I preached a series of lessons on leadership recently. Why? We were going to appoint additional elders. And so it seemed incumbent on me to preach about leadership. And I guess that's okay, but the thing is, you need to be preaching about leadership a long time ago or you're not really going to have the kind of leaders you want. Well, you need to preach on church discipline long before you ever need to do that. Now, when I preached on church discipline, I had people come up to me and say, who are we going to kick out of the church? (laughs) Who are we going to excommunicate? And I said, nobody. I'm in a series of lessons. You know, and I was preaching through 1 Corinthians, and I, what I was doing was uh, I'd taken some passages, I'd just taken sections of Corinthians and put them together under, under one major um, uh, series. But when I, they were like, you chose this for a reason. Who are we going to excommunicate? You know, well, that's, do that long before, because if you do preach this, that's exactly what they're going to think that you're going to do. But one of the things I said is church discipline is not about punishing the person. In fact, if you do it for that reason, you've already lost that soul. It's about saving the soul of the one who is in sin. Not punishing them, but to, to, that, that you have taken the fellowship, the spiritual fellowship away from this individual that they, have, that they long for. Oh yeah, they like to have one foot in the world. They like to be in another woman's bed. But they love being a part of the fellowship of this church. And if you take that away, that may be the inroad to save their soul. So you need to spend some time on church discipline. But he says in verse 6, you're boasting. This idea of of, um, we're a grace-oriented church and we're just going to love this man back into fellowships. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven goes uh, a whole way, way to um, infecting the whole lump. And he goes back to uh, the idea of Deuteronomy 17 and the leaven and all that was there and how you know, it rises and affects the whole thing. Well, he's going back to that idea for Deuteronomy 17. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. There seems to be a previous letter. This is actually 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. He said, I wrote you before. It didn't seem to be accepted, that first letter. And that's the purpose of this second letter. He said, I wrote to you before. Don't associate with the sexually immoral. Now, before you go thinking I'm saying something, he says, not, I'm not talking about don't associate with anyone in the world. He says, don't associate, verse 11, with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry, he's a reviler, drunker, swindler, don't even eat. There's something about putting your knees under the table that's, that's like a deeper fellowship. You know, when it's one thing for us to be on, you know, um, 
just talking around, uh, just talking in a group, and we're talking about sports and weather and all. But when you gather for a meal and you spend time together, that's where you really learn about one another. Don't even eat with one another. But he says, and this goes back to Deuteronomy 17, especially purge the evil person from among you, he says. Get that leaven out of here. Um, he's talking about holiness. I spoke to the Graymere Church at, during the Bible class, um, uh, excuse me, during the uh, devotional time after lunch yesterday. And I'm going to just share a little bit of that with you because I think it fits the rest of Corinthians. We may not get a whole lot more in Corinthians done, but we're getting a lot done. What time is it now? Oh, it's time for me to stop. How much time do I have? Oh, I still, okay. And I'll leave some for, for questions. We're all interested in about the future of the church right now. We're interested in the future of our nation. Uh, our nation. We always do that during an election cycle. And I don't know anything about the future. And I don't know a whole lot what the church is going to deal with in the future any more than when I was a young preacher in my first pulpit, I understood the things that, that would be different in ministry. You know, when I was... Learning to preach, uh, PowerPoint was a nothing. And, uh, you know, now preaching involves media and PowerPoint and Facebook and live streaming. And it in, it's a whole lot different than when I first started. It's going to be a whole... Some of you young men, 25, 30 years from now, you're going to be dealing with things and doing things that you're oblivious to right now. I don't know about the future. The one thing I do know is Malachi tells me, God tells me through Malachi, I am the Lord... I change what? Not. I change not. God doesn't change. I told him that the God that we serve today is the same God that parted those Red Sea waters. He's the same God that took a shepherd boy and made him to be the greatest earthly king this world has ever known. He is the same God that took a religious bigot like Saul of Tarsus. And he was the greatest missionary this world has ever known. He is the same God that lifted his son on the cross to die for you. God does not change. And then I said, I'm going to say something that you're not going to agree with. The future of the church does not depend on God. And I let that sit there for a moment. I said, stay with me. But the future of the church does not depend on on God. And what I mean by that is think in terms of mathematics, constants, and variables. God, who does not change, is the constant. We are the variable. The future of the church, every church that you're a part of, the future of the church does not depend on what kind of God God is going to be in the future. He's the constant. The future of the church depends on what kind of people we are going to be. And I told them we've got to be people of faith. We have to be people of love. We must be people who are holy. God blesses love. He blesses faith. But He must bless holiness too. And you may be a grace-oriented people. And you may love one another. And you may trust God. But if you are not living as sanctified people of the church of God, then, then the future of the church isn't very bright because God can't bless that. 
And that's what he is saying to the church in Corinth. You're loving each other. Almost to a fault, you're loving each other. You've got to be holy. Verse 18 of chapter uh, 6. Um, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. He's not trying to say one sin is worse than the other. Just, But there is a difference. When you sin, when you steal, you know, and, and other things, that's outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, which is the temple of God. That's what makes that sexual sin such a, a thing that needs to be completely eradicated from, from the church. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in you? I'm not a, obviously a word-only person. I believe in the personal indwelling of the Spirit. He's in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Give God the glory in your body. Now, he goes on in verse 7. Now, concerning matters about which you wrote. Now, he's getting down to their questions. And he talks about, is it good in chapter 7? He's talking about sexual relations now uh, between uh, men and women. And he's going to get delve into uh, chapter 7. I'm going to let, um, you know, whoever's covering the, uh, the text of chapters 1 through 7 really get into the marriage issues. But I think he's still talking about holiness here. And Doug had mentioned the Greek uh, historian Strabo. And, and Strabo is the one that told us about this thousand uh, prostitutes. And I agree with him. It's probably more of a... Uh, uh, an exaggeration. You know, I, I've told you a thousand times. I've preached this a thousand times. That may be what he's doing. In fact, there's no indication, as I can understand, that there were uh, a thousand prostitutes in that temple in Paul's day. It, you know, there, it, it, there was uh, that. But the one thing we do know is that this sexual immorality was pervasive in the city of Corinth. And it's obviously had its effect on the church of Corinth because sexual immorality is an issue with church members. It's an issue with married church members. That's the, that's the, the real crux of this, is it's not just uh, the, the, the members at large, um, but he says in verse 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. And... And it's the idea of this selfish pride as the husband. We love to quote Ephesians 5, you know, wives, you be submissive to the husband. And we like, you know, and we love to quote this, this one, you know, uh, you don't have control over your body. That belongs to me. Well, that's that selfish pride that Paul says doesn't need to exist. Yes, my wife belongs to me, but I equally belong to her. And I need to be a husband that humbly serves her. And if I take a leadership role in her life, it is as a spiritual leader. It's not as a boss and pointing the finger and barking out orders. But love, and I think what he's talking about, when you get into chapters 6 and 7, especially 8 and on, the whole topic, we say, well, we're talking about this, and we're talking about that, and spiritual gifts. He's talking about love. He's talking about love from here on in. How do we best love our wives, our husbands, our, the, our friends and neighbors in the church, or the people on the, uh, who are on the outside? But how do we love 
so that God is glorified and, and we do what is best for, uh, for others. Look at verse 10. To the married, I give you this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And I won't get into all the divorce and remarriage and all that, but I have, trust me, I've studied it, I've preached it, I have my thoughts and opinions. But the one thing that I think we can all agree on, what Paul is trying to emphasize, is when you enter into the holy union of marriage, you need to stick to it. And you need to love your wife in the, in the most true biblical sense. And if we will love each other, Divorce isn't going to be nearly as prevalent as, uh, as it was in Corinth. And I agree with what Doug said. The, the divorce rate is not the worst it's ever been. In fact, the indications are that the divorce rate in our nation has actually improved in recent years, at, at least especially in, in the church. Part of that may be the fact that people are, are cohabitating a whole lot more, not getting into marriage. Uh, but it does seem that less and less are, uh, are divorcing. But the point he's making here is uh, to be God's holy people. You are the holy temple of God, and you ought to act like it in your marriage. Number 12, or verse 12, to the rest I say, not I, not the Lord, or I, not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Again, you've got, you are into this marriage. And I'll tell you, the, the, the day that, that I had my epiphany when the things, when I came out of Oklahoma Christian, and I had, um, you know, I had a little small library, but I had a section on my library now about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now that section is, is more like this. But when I came out of college and started ministry, I knew exactly what I believed, it was black and white, what I believed about marriage, whether when a person can divorce and, and when they are allowed or permitted to remarry. And I knew every single answer. But I'll remember when the world reality struck my theology square in the face. And I'm not trying to change anybody's opinion this morning or your thought or your preaching. I'm just telling you, here's where I was. And I preached on marriage. And I'd preached on divorce and remarriage. And I had a young man come into my office the next morning on Monday, and he said, based on what you said, I need to get out of my marriage. And he said, I don't think I can be reconciled to my first wife because she's long gone and she's remarried. But it sounds like I need to get out of my marriage. And in the back of my mind, I thought, I'm good. You know, boy, he really understood what I was preaching. But then he began to tell me his story and that he had married when he was young and they really weren't going to church and they, neither one were really Christian and they just grew apart. They didn't have any children and, and they just decided together they didn't love each other anymore and so they divorced in less than two years of marriage. In the meantime, he's met another young woman who was a Christian and who helped to convert him to Christ. And now they have two small daughters. As I remember, they were five and three. And here's this young father who comes to me, and he says, basically, I agree with what you're 
preaching. I need to leave my family. And that's the first time that in, in all good conscience, I said, oh, I'm not so sure I can go along with you on that. I don't know how you can break up that sweet little family and those, take the, those two little girls, their father away. And I'm, again, I'm not trying to tell you what to preach or I'm not trying to tell you to, that you need to change what you're doing. I'm just saying all of a sudden, this messed up world that we preach in, the reality of that was sitting in my pew and, and I didn't realize it was to that extent. And so that's when I started had to not only... Now, I still preach. I still preach that there's no cause for divorce except one. And that is sexual immorality outside of the marriage. And I still preach that, that some people have a right to marry. And there are only some people you have a right to marry. I still preach that. But you know what? This world is like a great big soap opera. And people's lives get very convoluted and messed up, and some of them are sitting in your pews. And for the first time, my doctrine of love didn't quite fit my doctrine of marriage and divorce and remarriage. And I didn't know what to do with this young man. It took us a few weeks to kind of work out, and they, they remained in the church there, and he remained with his family and raised his daughters. One of them went to Oklahoma Christian. This is a long time ago. And, and so she married a Christian young man at Oklahoma Christian. So, um, I'm just, uh, so I'm just saying that Paul, ultimately, what is the most loving thing? Now, we're not loving people that we ignore sin. Okay, And I told the man, if you stay in this church, and I hope you will, it does not change what God's Word teaches, and it will not change what I teach. You know? and, um, and I remember having the conversation with him that um, um, if this man, who was divorced unscripturally, no doubt about it, I think he married unscripturally, at least the woman married him unscripturally. Um. If they go to heaven, it will be by the grace of God. I, on the other hand, I've been married for almost 35 years. I've never had a sexual relationship outside of my marriage. I pray that I never do. And I also hope that I go to my grave having never been divorced. And if I go to heaven, it will be by the grace of God. All right. That's all I'm saying. And um, uh, Paul is saying, get in marriage, stay committed in your marriage, and love one another the way Christ uh, loves you. Boy, I'm running out of time, but the meat sacrifice to idol, this is about love. And he says there's two scenarios. There's one scenario where if I eat this meat, that yes, it was sacrificed to a pagan god, but now it's being sold in the marketplace as filet mignon, and I love beef. All right? There's one scenario that if I'm eating in the presence of a brother who is offended by that, and he struggles with that because he's not sure he can eat that meat, then the loving thing for me to do is to eat Caesar salad instead. Maybe not Caesar salad. That may have been a brother. <laughs> so, um, but, um, but to do something different. But there's another scenario where I can eat this meat in the presence of another brother 
that that doesn't bother him at all. In fact, he's, he's already made his peace. He understands the freedom in Christ that he has, that he can eat the meat that's sacrificed to a, you know, to a nondescript idol that's made out of wood or stone. It's, you know, that doesn't bother him at all. It's just, it's just, you know, he just, if you do eat it, make sure you share it with him and it's medium well, you know. So there's those two scenarios. But in either scenario, whether one brother who struggles or one who doesn't, I love both of them that I don't want to do anything that would, would cause him to struggle in his faith. And so Paul's going to talk about the weak brother and the strong brother. He does the same thing in Romans 14. You know, talking about the weak brother and all. The interesting thing is, every one of us thinks we are the strong brother. We think everyone else is the weak brother. And I'll be honest with you, there's been times in my life I have been the weak brother. And there's things that I might struggle with that others didn't have a problem with. But I'll, and I'll define the weak brother in Romans 14 simply as this. That the person who thinks that everyone has to do it their way, even though the Bible is silent about it. You know, um, in, in our congregation right now, I stopped wearing a tie about two and a half years ago. I haven't worn a tie since. I haven't worn a tie at a wedding, at a funeral, or at church on Sunday. And that was a real problem for some of my folks. And I had to go to some in a loving way. And I said, I don't want this to be an issue for you. So let's talk about it. And we, we talked about that. I wasn't just like, well, I'm going to wear a tie. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. I didn't, want to take that, I didn't want to take that attitude. But I wanted to help them to understand. And, and you know, the Bible is silent about preachers wearing ties. Anybody know one? Share it with me. In fact, as I, can, as I understand it, the Bible on only twice talks about dressing up for church. I'm thinking it's primarily the one in James. The Bible only talks about dressing up for church twice. And you know what the Bible says? Don't. Don't dress up for church. You know, you ladies, don't let it all be about your hair and your makeup and your look at me outfit. You know, and you men, it's not all about the three-piece Italian cut suit and the, you know, and, and looking great. Um, I think sometimes the way we dress for church can intimidate our poor brothers and sisters that come into our presence. And, and Paul says, I don't want that to be the case. I want it to be about loving you and I want it to be about loving him. And we, we want to do what is best. But the weak brother is where the Bible is silent on this issue or that issue or clapping in church or ties or whatever. The Bible's silent, but I insist that everybody else agree with me. That's the weak brother. Simple as that. If you think that everyone has to do this or should never do this, even though the Bible's silent, that's the weak brother. Now here, the weak brother is the one, he has a legitimate struggle. He, he hasn't, because of his raising and upbringing, he can't bring himself to eat this meat. We've got to love him and help him mature. Okay? But, the, but the bottom line is we're going to love one another, and we have the freedom to, to do that. Well, uh, chapter 10 is about um, uh, idolatry. We'll skip over that. Chapter 11, um, and the head covering, and women wearing head coverings, and the men wearing long hair and short hair, whatever you believe on this, whatever you think about that, and I have my own opinions and all, um, there are gender distinctions. Okay? And they, are, they, and they exist. I will tell you, um, 
First Timothy chapter two, verse eight. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. Okay. I don't think that Paul wrote those words to say only men can pray in church. I think that's what we can imply by it because it is a very male gender word. I want men lifting up holy hands. The operative word there is holy, not lift. But, um, but he wrote that to say, I want men to live holy lives so that when they stand up before the church... You know, God will bless their prayers. It's kind of what Peter said. Man, you treat your wives right so that your prayers are not hindered. Well, here, it, this is gender specific. There are roles for men and roles for women. We are equal in Christ. The Galatian letter tells us we're all one in Christ. But our roles are different. Um, the Lord's Supper, beginning in verse, 30, um, uh, verse 17. In fact, if you look in verse 17... And you look in verse 33, uh, this is what's called an inclusio. This is, this is as smart as I'm ever going to be among you. Um, where we have bracketed a topic. And so he has said in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I don't commend you. In verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. He's, he's bracketed this. They're like bookends. And he's going to talk about their Lord's Supper. And there's actually two feasts. One feast is called the Lord's Supper. The other feast is called the, what do you call them? Love feast, okay? The idea of a love feast, where we're going to get together, we call them church socials, or we call them potlucks. But obviously, they come together, and uh, you know they don't drive cars, and they live two and a half miles away. They have to walk there, many of them, and, and so they bring their meal with them. And actually, there's going to be two meals on that Sunday when the church gathers together, because I've brought the meal for my family, and hopefully I've brought enough to share with others who may not have as much. And Paul is dealing with both of these. He says, you come together, and some of you wealthier members, you're eating a great big opulent meal. You're gorging yourselves. You're getting stuff. Some of you getting a little bit tipsy on the wine. And you've humiliated the poor person who doesn't have anything. They're sitting there, and they're just looking at you. They haven't eaten like that and since they can't remember when. And, and it's the most unloving thing to enjoy your opulence and, and not to share with a, with a brother. And then you turn right around and you're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You know, after, after you've treated your brother that way. And I think what he's saying is there wasn't much love in the love feast, and there isn't much Lord in the Lord's Supper. He says, I can't commend you in this. What you're doing is, is wrong. You come together and this one's going hungry, one's getting drunk. It's just, verse 29, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, everyone, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So when you come together to eat, Wait for each other, show respect for each other, love one another, share with each other. Chapter 12, the spiritual gifts. Again, we're talking about love. This is a, this is a problem with division here. But he's talking about love again. We've got all these spiritual gifts. And some people's spiritual self-esteem is based in how gifted they are. I was telling this brother up here who had that great whistle. 
Every one of us in the room is jealous of his gift. Every one of us wish we could whistle like that at, at some times. In fact, I said that, that could be a spiritual gift in some settings because it's necessary. But we have the gift of tongues and you have the gift of wisdom and knowledge and prophecy and interpretation. All of these. Now, I, I absolutely believe that there were miraculous spiritual gifts in the church in Corinth. Okay? It's obvious that they were there. And it's obvious to me that, that even women had some of these miraculous gifts. Now, I'm a cessationist today. I believe that those gifts ended when the apostles went the way of the earth. But there was a time for a young church that needed the Word of God still to be confirmed. That's the whole purpose of these, of these spiritual gifts, is to confirm that what Christ did, what these apostles taught, and what you believe, this has been confirmed. But there was obviously chaos in the church, the, the assembly, that, well, I have the gift of interpretation, and I'm just going to do that whenever I want to. I may just jump up in the middle of your prophecy or your wisdom, and I'm going to do that, and whether there's an interpreter there or not. And uh, so you come down to chapter 14 and verse 40, you know, let, and boy, we have quoted this in the Church of Christ as much as anybody, and rightfully so. Let things be done decently and in order. Now, that does not mean that you have to have two songs in a prayer, two songs in the Lord's Supper. That's not what this means. And I think what has happened, my personal opinion, I think what has happened with emphasizing the decently and in order is we have taken the emotion out of our services. And we've taken much of the energy out of our services. In fact, I'm struggling with this at College Church. I'm I'm really talking to people and I'm trying to encourage the elders and, and we're trying to change uh, a little bit of our DNA to uh, that when, when our worship leaders stand before the church, that um, it's one of the things I said yesterday, Andrew, I said, no preacher has a right to make the gospel of Christ dry and dusty and boring. You just don't have that right. And if you are a boring preacher, then do you and your church a service and don't preach. No, you do not have, but, I, but, but God's called me to preach. No, he hasn't. If you're a boring preacher, okay, and I'm not suggesting any of you are, but I've seen men who are called to preach that quite honestly, I'm not sure the Holy Spirit got it right that time. Okay, because I, people struggle to hear that. But you don't have a right. And no worship leader has a right to get up there and to read a passage of Scripture and to just read and in a monotone voice. And I teach these young men. And I'll spend about 10 minutes. I said, hey, I want you to get to church about have your parents get you there, whatever, about 15, 20 minutes early. And I want to hear you read your Scripture. And I listen to them. And I'll, uh, we'll have a passage out of Matthew or Luke, and I'll, usually I give them something simple. But I said, how do you think Jesus said those words? When he said, you brood of vipers, how do you think he said that? You know? And I train them and help instruct them. Uh, and I don't tell them afterwards. I said, well, you should have read it like this. No, I try to. Let's, if I've got an opinion on this, I've got to do it beforehand. And I had one, little, one young man. He's probably about 10 years of age. Micah is his name. He's about 10 years of old age. His brother is Joseph. And they were both reading scripture on that, on that particular day. 
And when and he was reading, I don't remember the exact passage, but he was talking about where Jesus is confronting the hypocrisy. And he stopped in his scripture reading because he took Mr. Noel's words at heart. And he and he said, and he looked and he got the most scowl faced on that he could. And he looked at the church and he looked up from his Bible and says, You brood of vipers. You know, this is 10 years old. Well, he gets it. And he reads those words and he interprets those words with his voice and his inflection. Do that. And, and help your leaders to learn how to read Scripture and to bring out the emphasis uh, in that. And, uh, and the prayer leaders, get into that microphone. Speak up and, and let people. Our biggest issue at College Church, and we're an older congregation, a large section of us, uh, about one-third of our church is 60 years and older. And I'm hard, I don't have my hearing aid on today, but I wear one. Uh, but I'm deaf in this ear, and I, I know the struggle of hearing people you know, when they don't speak up. So all of these, and the song leaders. And College Church has great singing. I told someone earlier, our model there is the preaching ain't much, but the singing's still good. And, but we have choral directors who lead our singing. And you would think, wow, that must be a good thing. Well, it used to be. And it's not so much anymore, especially with this younger generation of millennials. They don't want one, two, three, four. They're, they're not looking for that style of singing. They, and they, and they don't want the notes up on the, the screen. They just want the words. And they'll leave the, they leave the music and they leave the emphasis to the heart. But, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're trying to deal with all of those with an older generation that wants very technically well-led worship services. And a younger generation that wants to, you know, wants to experience the worship and wants a worship leader that pulls it out of us, doesn't direct us to sing, pulls it out of us. And we're, we're strong with all of that. Uh, but even going that direction doesn't mean that things are chaotic. And that you just have, they just, you know, harem scare them. You just do what you want to when you want. There, there still needs to be a, a, um, a respect of God and a respect of one another, even in our assemblies. And that's what he's dealing with in, in chapter 12. And that's why he gives them the, the illustration of the body. You're a hand, you're an ear, you're a, uh, an eye and a foot. And the ear cannot say to the eye, because I'm not like you, I'm not important. We're all important. And we're all necessary. And so in verse 24 of chapter, uh, what chapter am I in? Uh, 12. Which our representable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor, honor to the part that, it, that lacked it, lacked honor, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for each other. For if one member suffers, we all suffer together. And if one member is honored, we all honor. We rejoice with that member. You know, so this is the rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Problem is, we tend to, we tend to make it, it's a lot easier for me to weep with you when you're hurting than it is to rejoice with him when he's been given a promotion. Or when he's had a baby and my wife and I are barren. You know, it's, it's hard to rejoice with some that maybe are experiencing things that we would like to experience. But that's what it's like to be part of a body. Things happen in the lives of other people that you wish would happen to you, and things happen to you 
that you're glad they didn't happen to others. And that's part of living in the body of Christ. Chapter 13, it's always read at weddings. I don't know why it's not written to a couple. It was written to people who were competing with each other with their spiritual gifts. That's why he opens up and says, if I, if I have tongues, if I speak with the tongue of angels, and I am not a loving individual toward you, then I am nothing more than just clanging on a pan that you get out of your kitchen. You know this, this, uh, this chapter, and it's this great chapter on love, and that's because that's, his, that's been his emphasis ever since way back in chapter, uh, chapter 6 even. You know, one brother taking someone else to court. Now, in, uh, in the Greek culture, there seems to be um, some indication that higher status people could take a lower status person to court, but not the other way around, not vice versa. You know, and so in that court, can you imagine what it would be like worshiping where this wealthier individual is suing a, a poor man who can't afford a lawyer? You know, and there's a lot of, lot of conflict there. So he said, to, first of all, don't, don't, take, don't take your conflicts to the world to let them decide. Surely we can do a better job of that here in the church. We're going to judge this world. We're going to judge angels. Please don't ask me what that means. Uh, I think the word also means messengers. Okay, so we can go there. But we're going to judge those uh, of this world. We don't need them to judge us at this point. Well, when you come to um, chapter um, uh, 15, and I'm going to end here, I heard Stephen M. R. Covey. If you know who Stephen Covey is, that's his dad. He's the one that wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective or Successful Effective uh, People. Well, this is his son. His father died seven years ago. This is Stephen M. R. Covey. He's written a really excellent book on leadership. I can highly recommend it called The Speed of Trust. And he was on campus at um, uh, Harding last week. And one of the things he said is, and I love this line, life is lived in crescendo, not in diminuendo. It's a music term, you know, not softening, getting lower. It's in a crescendo. Well, that's what Paul says in chapter 15 about the resurrection. The best is yet to come. And he's dealing, he's answering questions about people. It's obvious that some people aren't sure they believe in the resurrection. And Paul is dealing with the non-belief in the resurrection. And that's why he said, well, that's why he's talking about all this baptism for the dead. Why are they doing that if they don't believe in the resurrection? And bottom line, he says, that's where your victory is. Without the resurrection, your faith is in vain and there, there's no life, and there's no living in crescendo. The reason I can live in crescendo, and you and I can, if we will make sure that we keep the gospel. And that's why he says that um, in uh, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, he defines the gospel that Jesus died. He was buried. He was raised. But that's not the end of the gospel. Four times, Paul says, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. Even to me, one born untimely. He appeared to 500 at one time. He appeared. The gospel is Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected. And yes, he was resurrected. And how do you know he was resurrected? Because people saw him. It's based in eyewitness testimony. Paul's reminding them of that. 
that there were people who saw with their own eyes. They were like Thomas. I won't believe unless I see with my eyes his hands and his side. But when Thomas received that, but you remember what Jesus said after he talked to Thomas? Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Thomas, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. That's you and me. We're part of the blessed community who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there's one thing you're not preaching enough on, and I'm not preaching enough on, it's the resurrection. And it's the appearance of the resurrection to others. I'm going to stop there. I could keep going on. Um, I want to recommend, uh, I put in some uh, books to recommend, but I recently came across this one, Alexander Strauch. He preaches for the um, Littleton... Bible Church uh, up there in the Denver, Colorado area. He wrote a book called Biblical Eldership. Anybody have that book? Okay, Sarah, you would swear it was written by one of our brothers. You you would not know that he was not one of us, you know, in, in fellowship. There's not one word of his book on biblical eldership that I disagree with. Not one word. And, and, he, and I mean, he is a biblical and historical right down to the point. But he wrote another book, and it's called Leading in Love. And the reason I uh, give you this, if you want to uh, preach a series from 1 Corinthians, you might want to preach on 1 Corinthians 13. It's probably the best way to preach the, the letter of, of Corinthians is to just do it in, in segments and under topics. Um, this is Leading in Love. And most of the chapters, not every one, but most of the chapters are based on the definitions of love is, uh, love is kind, love is uh, patient, love does not keep record of wrongs, it's not rude. Well, that's this book. This is, most of it is based on 1 Corinthians 13, and, and this is great preaching material right here, if you want to preach through 1 Corinthians 13. So I'll give that one to you. Um, I'm going to stop here, and, and how much time do we have for um, questions? We got, huh? Okay. You can tell by the program, I am the token moron on this program, okay? Uh, but I've been preaching a good number of years. If, if anybody's got a question, I think we're ready for lunch, is what it is. All right. Well, God bless you. I've enjoyed being with you today.